consider this concept of abiding, and one of our lo- wonderful saints or lovely saints came up to me and she goes, Chris, it's not that I feel like I'm failing God. It's that I want to draw nearer to him, and so I do these things. And I'm like, that's the heart. We want to draw near to Christ, and so we seek out opportunities to study his word. We want to draw near and abide in Christ. That's why we come to service on Sunday, to worship, to pray, to give, to fellowship, to study. And I love that heart, that we're drawing near. That is a part, that's the heart of abiding, is to remain close, to draw near to Christ. And what we're doing is, as we go through this journey of the book of Acts, we're looking at early churches that did just that. They were abiding churches. They were churches that were planted and they were devoted and dedicated to the scriptures and to prayer and to fellowship and to gathering together, just like we're gathering. And what's so wonderful is we get to look in on these early churches and we get to glean what we're to look like as a local church. In fact, this morning, we're going to look at two specific early churches. Uh, One we looked at last week, the planted church of Antioch. Yeah. Can you go ahead and bring that that map up for me? I love maps. Okay, so uh, Antioch, uh, we were were in the city of Antioch last week. If you don't remember, that's where we were. Uh, We traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. Can somebody just yell out, why did Christians make their way to Antioch? What drove them out of Jerusalem? Persecution, that is exactly right. So in chapter 7 of Acts, there was a severe, severe persecution that began after the stoning of Stephen, and they began to disperse north, south, east, and west. And a group of unnamed Christians made their way north all the way to the city of Antioch, a metropolitan city, and began to share the message of Jesus. Now, what made this distinct from the work in Jerusalem is that the, the preachers began to reach not only Jewish uh, people, but began to reach Gentiles. And the church began to grow. It was the first time it had ever happened in history where there was this blended church of Jew and Gentiles. Like God had torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. All racial divisions had been dissolved in Christ and they worshiped as one. And so Paul uh, or Saul and Barnabas hung out in the city of Antioch. And where we left off last week, they were teaching the people at Antioch and they were discipling them for the period of about a year. And we're going to pick up back in Antioch. So this morning, we're going to go from Antioch. We're going to travel down to Jerusalem and then we're going to travel from Jerusalem back to Antioch. We're doing a lot of traveling today. Are you all excited? All right, pack your bag. Okay, so a few things that we're going to see through this passage that we go through is those who abide in Christ first are generous. Okay, we're going to see generosity on display. I hope that you come to recognize that as we grow, as we abide in Christ, we grow in generosity. Secondly, we're going to come to see that those who abide in Christ are sacrificial. And I don't know how I feel about this, this concept, but it's very clear uh, from the book of Acts that the early Christians were willing to give their lives for Jesus. I'm not really excited about that concept, about dying for Jesus. But for some reason, the early church, they were willing to sacrifice even their very life for the gospel. And we're going to see that very clearly. We're going to see those who abide in Christ also experience fruitful prayer. And I cannot wait to share a testimony what God has done through our prayers and the prayers of other saints powerfully just this week. And we'll get to that. But first, let's look at generosity. Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we're in Antioch, and there is a prophet that arrives in Antioch. In fact, it says, now in those days, these days, what are these days? The these days of what? The early church, that's right. Uh, Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, this is interesting because there was a group of itinerant preachers called prophets in the first century. 
And this provides a lot of confusion in our 21st century context because there's a lot of people running around today calling themselves prophets. And what a prophet was is a person who spoke out, foretold what was going to happen. Okay, so they would speak forth the word of God and they would speak forth prophecy of things that were going to happen. I believe that was a very distinct first century ministry. It had a specific purpose. Now, in some contexts, in some ways, I'm like a prophet. Like, I'm speaking forth the word of God. Here's the word of God. We're going through it verse by verse. I'm like speaking forth. But in another sense, uh, prophets were also speaking future events that were going to happen. There are some today who claim to be prophets. I want us to be very, very careful with those who claim to be prophets. I quote here from Warren Wiersbe. Uh, there are people today who claim to receive special words of revelation or words of wisdom. I hear this a lot in certain mm, Christian circles where people are, I guess, more special or more in tune with the Holy Spirit than with other people, and they get special revelation and words from God and prophetic utterances. And, and Wearsby points out, and I think rightly, such revelations are suspect and even at times dangerous. I have heard people that have used that concept of speaking prophecy to bring glory to themselves, or, well, as contemporary prophets, they often do it to profit, and I mean financially. Be careful. Because if somebody comes up to me and says, God told me this, dot, 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 how can I even argue with that? Right? Like, God's kind of the authority. And so that means what they've said is authoritative. And I'm like, be careful with somebody who's speaking authoritatively, especially if it ever is inconsistent with what is authoritative in the scriptures. You guys understand what I'm getting at? Do you? Do you not? Tracking? Okay. Um, some of you are like, why is this important? Because there's a lot of people today who have a distorted theology. And we got to be careful with that. But in the first century, there's this guy by the name of Agabus who was a prophet. And he did speak forth things that were going to happen prophetically. And what I find fascinating about this guy, Agabus, is that what he spoke forth actually happened. Okay, so that's how you know someone's a prophet. They say something's going to happen and guess what happens? It happens. If somebody speaks forth a prophecy and it doesn't happen, guess what they're not? Uh-huh. They're not a prophet. They're a liar. Thank you, Stephen. So one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold. So there it is. Here's your foretelling. Speaking forth what's going to happen by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. So Agabus stands up in front of the church and proclaims that there's going to be a famine. In fact, Luke goes to the, the lengths of time stamping in history when it's actually fulfilled. This took place in the days of Claudius. So Agabus stood up, delivered a prophecy, Years later, the prophecy is fulfilled. In fact, I'll give you just a little quote here uh, from the guy who is the historian J.B. Polhill. The guy. Here he is. Uh, the reign of Claudius was, in fact, marked by a long series of crop failures. In fact, if you do any history searches, I know Roman emperors are your favorite subject. Um, one of my favorite guys is Caligula, followed by Claudius and then Nero, Dun, dun, dun. We'll talk about Nero in the near future, but uh, Claudius was the least popular emperor. And you know why he was least popular? Because during his reign, there was a famine. How many political figures are really popular during recessions? Very few. Claudius fell into this, this time period of when there was a massive famine in the then known world. In fact, it affected Judea and Rome and Egypt and Greece. Uh, the Judean famine seems to have taken place somewhere 46 to 48 AD. Uh, and we have Egyptian documents that go ahead and, and tell us uh, about the uh, famine. Why is this important to us? Because we get to ask the question, how did the church respond when they heard there was a need? 
How should the church respond when they hear that there's going to be a famine and it's going to affect a fellow church? What's that? Provide. Provide. That there should be some sense of generosity that should come forth from the church. That if you have the ability to meet a need, it's one thing to say, hey, I'll pray for you, which is very popular. Like someone mentions a need and we're like, oh, we'll pray for you. And then God's like, wait a second, you're praying, but I've given you the ability to meet that need. Quit praying and start meeting the need. And so the early church, we see generosity flowing from them. Look at verse 29. So the disciples did what? What is that word? Determined. Everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so they determined to gather together resources that could help offset the impending famine. And what I love about this picture is there's no focus on how much each individual gave. But each individual person was so abiding in Christ that that when they heard there was a need, they were moved by generosity, this heart to give, and they all determined to give as they had ability to those who had need. And I think that's a great principle of giving. That we give, we determine to give, moved by the generosity of God, that we determine to give according to our ability to those who are in need. And I love that we get to support local ministries and global. You may not know this, but we every single month support work in Haiti and in Dubai and in Mexico. Did you know that when you give, when you worship God and you're giving to here at Firewheel, that those resources are sent out even globally. Isn't that cool? That we recognize that there is a need and we get to meet that need. And so they gather up all these resources and Paul or Saul in the text right now, uh, and Barnabas head for Jerusalem. Can I have the map again, Shelley? Have I told you I like maps? <laughs> Aren't maps awesome? Okay, so they're in Antioch. They gather up all these resources, and they start heading south to Jerusalem. Now, what we need to recognize that right now, as they're heading down the established trade routes towards Jerusalem, things are not going well in Jerusalem. In fact, there is some unbelievable persecution that's taking place. Which leads to our second point for this morning is that those who abide in Christ are sacrificial. Some are actually giving their life for the gospel. In fact, as we open up to chapter 12, we enter into one of the more um, heartbreaking or holy passages. Because we are going to counter... Uh, the second person that we witness martyred for the faith, uh, and not only a second person, but it's the first time we will see, and the last time we will see in the scriptures, an apostle martyred. History tells us that all of the apostles, barring one, were martyred, but we actually witnessed this one. Chapter 12. It says, about that time, about what time? What time is that? Okay, early church, but it's about that time as Barnabas and Saul are heading south. Herod the king laid violent hands. If you have a Bible, circle that. That phrase, violent hands, murderous hands. His desire is to kill anyone who belonged to the church. And then specifically, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's a veiled reference to beheading. Literally took James into custody and publicly executed him. And some of us have read the name. How many of you all have read the name Herod in the scriptures? You ever heard that name, Herod? And some of us don't, we don't know who Herod is. 
There are three Herods referenced in the New Testament. Three. The first Herod we meet is in the birth narrative of Christ. Herod the Great. He is the same Herod the Great that rebuilt the Jerusalem temple, trying to earn favor with the Jews. He is the same Herod that had all of the two-year-olds and under and Bethlehem murdered when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born. It is the same Herod who violently oppressed people. His son, Herod Antipas, is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded because John the Baptist said it wasn't kosher for him to take his brother's wife, Herodias, and Herodias had her daughter dance before Herod. Herod got wooed by Herodias' daughter and said, what would you like? She said, I have an appetite for John the Baptist's head. Immediately, John the Baptist is beheaded. It's a disturbing story in Mark 6. Luke 24, Herod Antipas is the same Herod who interrogated Jesus right before the cross, even though Jesus remained silent. And now the grandson of Herod the Great is Herod Agrippa. That is the Herod we're meeting right now. Something you need to understand about the Herods. They were violent. They were, they were terrible, terrible people. But they also strove to win over the Jewish people. Herod here, Herod Antipas, is trying to win over the Jewish people through the murder of the church. I'm sorry, Herod Agrippa. And his desire is to put to death as many of the Jewish or Christian leaders as possible. It reminds me of John chapter 16, verse 2. See, Jesus told the disciples that there was going to be a time. In fact, there, there was a time coming, whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Herod believed that he was honoring the Jewish God by killing Christians. It's hard for us to, to like reconcile this with our North American Christianity, but there, there's, reality, there's a reality of suffering. And there are a lot of people who are talking about like living your best life now, and God wants to make you happy and wealthy and all that, but that, that's not actually true. I mean, there's happiness to be found. He's, he's actually desiring to make us holy. And a people who are willing to, to lay our life down for, for the gospel which is heavy. And so we see James here. He is brothers uh, with, with uh, John. I want to tell you a little bit about these guys because it, we're sitting graveside. Verse 2. Can you bring up Acts 12, verse 2? He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Family, there's times where we're reading stuff in the Scripture and we just move so fast. But this passage is Holy. This guy, James, was an apostle. His brother named John. You know his dad's name? Good old Zebedee. <laughs> it's a great name. Zebedee and sons had a fishing company, fishing business. And one day, an itinerant preacher by the name of Jesus walking by said, hey, come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. They left their nets and began to follow Jesus. They didn't know he was the Lord then. But then there came a day where they realized that he was a king. In fact, the king. And he was going to sit on a throne in the kingdom. And they got to thinking, you know what would be great? If we could sit on your right and left-hand side. We want to be great in the kingdom of God. And so they come up to Jesus right before he goes to the cross, James and John. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask or whatever we ask. How many of you would like to ask Jesus for something to his face right now? What would you ask for out of curiosity? What's that? What would you ask for? Huh? I can't hear you. 
Wisdom. Oh, that's cool. I would have asked for like 100 bucks, but that's cool. <laughs> How many of you would ask for something like that? What would you ask for? You could ask for anything, and, and you're hoping that he's going to give it to you right away. All right, well, there's not a lot of takers. But they asked for something pretty significant, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. See, their thought was Jesus was going to usher in this kingdom, and in this kingdom, they wanted to be highly esteemed at his right hand and his left hand, and Jesus said, you do not know what you were asking. They're like, well, yeah, we do. They thought he was going to enter into his kingdom of glory from glory to glory. How did Jesus enter his kingdom? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? What is he referring to? The what? The cross. A baptism of suffering. Are you willing to drink the cup of suffering? Are you willing to be baptized in the baptism of suffering? I love the response. We are able. I had no idea. Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with you, which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, the sword. They just, he just drank the cup. There's the baptism. It's heavy. It wasn't enough. Herod set out to continue to win over the Jews. In fact, verse 3 we see of chapter 12, and when he saw that it pleased the Jew, this brought the Jews joy to see James beheaded. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. I mean, if you're going to take somebody, take Peter. He's the chief of the apostles. Takes Peter into custody, and we get this timestamp. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering over him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter is taken into custody. He is arrested. And we would assume that he's about to experience the same fate of James. The execution is delayed because it's the season of Passover. So Peter is then taken into custody, guarded by 16 soldiers, and taken to the inner chambers of the prison. How do you respond as the church in this situation? See, we saw the church at Antioch respond through generosity. They could meet the need. They sought out to meet it. In this particular situation, there's nothing they can do. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Yeah. You pray. When it's outside of your control, you pray. And the first century church, they were a praying church. Those who abide in Christ, they pray. Look at verse 5. It says, so when Peter was kept in prison, uh, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church began to pray. And what do you think their prayers were? What's that? Protect him. Deliver him. Get him out of there. You know what's crazy? Sometimes we pray big prayers and we're surprised when they're answered. You ever experience that? Like we pray something huge and we're like, I mean, there's probably no way, Lord, but if you could, we're about to see God dramatically answer some prayers. Last week we prayed for our sister church. In fact, we turned off the camera and I told you all about it and you all remember what I'm talking about? Okay. So I got an email today, or not today, this week, um, and this is what's happened. So we prayed last week that they would have special consideration by the council. So the council has come back and have relayed that 
the church we prayed for, our sister church, and one other ministry in the city have been provided more time to continue meeting in the city as believers and as a church. Isn't that amazing? A church that was going to be disbanded by the end of this month has one more month. We're praying that they have 12 more months, 12 more years, 100 more years. Amen? Those who abide in Christ experience fruitful prayer. And so they begin to pray for Peter, praying that God would release him, trusting in the promise of Jesus that if you abide in me, my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so God is going to powerfully release Peter. But we're going to be confronted with a real problem. And this is a problem that we might, you might experience in your own life. Have you ever had a season in your life where you go, I know that God could intervene, but he doesn't. Have you ever experienced that, that disappointment? And at insult to injury, you look over into somebody else's life, and God intervenes powerfully on their behalf. How many of you are overjoyed by that experience? We're going to have to wrestle with God's sovereignty right now. Because in this passage of Acts chapter 12, James is beheaded. Peter is released. What's up with that? Why would God allow one apostle to be beheaded while the other apostle is miraculously set free? Why would he let this family member of mine die of cancer while this person is healed? Why would he let me lose my job while these other people who don't deserve their jobs, they get to keep their jobs? You guys get what I'm getting at here? And I'm going I'm to argue that one of the most comforting and one of the most reassuring theological concepts that I've ever been introduced to is this reality that God is sovereign and he is in control. And because he is in control, I don't have to worry. And because he is in control, I can trust that no matter what happens, no matter how terrible it is, no matter how awful it is, and you may be an awful right now, you may be an awful land right now, that no matter how terrible it is, that those who are in Christ, all things will work for good. And then it's even better that by the time we reach heaven in eternity, in his presence, we'll look back and we'll say, that was light, that was momentary. That the worst that this world throws at us when we sit in his sovereignty, we get to walk in strength because we know he is in control. And this is what I love about Peter. This man was resting in sovereignty. Look at verse 6 of chapter 12. So then it said, now Herod was about to bring him out. Oh, you got to believe Herod's happy. I hate Herod. How many of y'all have Herods in your life? It's people that use power to manipulate and control. They bring it all back to themselves. Man, I hate Herod. What do you think he's doing on the night before the execution? I got an execution in the morning. He's stoked. Okay, so Peter's sleeping between two soldiers. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, if you're about to be put to death the next morning, how many of you have found sleeping? No, I'd be tripping. I'd be worried. I'd be anxious. How is Peter able to sleep? He's resting in God's sovereignty. Sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. I mean, this is so Houdini, David Blaine, they're not getting out of this. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So you've got him sleeping, like crashed out. There's a soldier on one side, soldier on another. He's bound with chains. There's guards at the door, guards at the next door, and guards at an iron gate. He ain't getting out. Unless something miraculous takes place. 
and we get to see one of the most dramatic rescues, jailbreaks, uh, in the book of Acts. And behold, you ever wonder like, what it would look like to see this on video? There's times where I'm like, I wish I could YouTube this. So, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And I'm picturing this angel, like, coming into the cell, like, radiating bright, and, like, staring at Peter, like, waiting for him to wake up. And he's like, I don't know, he's asleep. <laughs> Kick him? Hey, wake up, because it, look, it says, the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. It, like, speaks like he had to hit him to wake him up and said to him, hey, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. What is that? Is that a miracle? Oh, that's a miracle, man. When God breaks chains, he breaks chains. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. He did so. He said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And what's so incredible about this is this reminds me of the story out of Exodus that took place during Passover when God powerfully delivered the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. And he said, tonight's the night where the angel passes over, wrap your cloak around you, eat quickly and flee. And this particular night, Peter is rescued from the bondage of Rome. The chains fall off. In fact, he's, he's wrapping his cloak around him, and he went out and followed him, but he didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was dreaming. So he's like, this is a really cool dream. Uh, I'm just going to go with this. All right, you lead on. And they pass by it. So like he gets up, and he's like, the two guys are asleep. And he's like looking at him. He's like, I'll see you guys later. Puts his shoes on, and he's walking through. The gate opens wide, and there's a sentry on both sides, and they're asleep. Wow, that's crazy. He walks through the second door. They're asleep, and then they get to an iron gate. This is cool. So when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them on its own accord. And they went out along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Your response, please. What is your response at this moment if this has happened to you? I'm going to go get a slice of pizza, right? (laughs) This is incredible. He is powerfully released, and then he comes to himself. He realizes, wow, I am sure the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that they were expecting. They were expecting me to be put to death, and now I'm powerfully released. And he goes, and he immediately goes to share what happened with the church. I love this. Testify to what God's doing in your life. Testify. Share it with the church. Peter went and immediately found a local church. And they were house churches at this point. They weren't meeting in the temple. They were hiding. And he goes to Mary's house, not Mary, mother of Jesus Mary, but Mary, mother of John Mark Mary, and he starts knocking at the door. So when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary and the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, family, circle that. You've just been introduced to one of the more important people in the scriptures, John Mark. How many of you have ever read the gospel of Mark? Thanks, John. We'll talk about that later. Where many were gathered together and they were doing what? What's this church doing? They're praying. Sometimes we're praying for things. When it actually is fulfilled, we don't believe it got fulfilled. Look at what happens. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, so he gets up to Mary's house. He's like, oh, this is crazy, man. He starts knocking. A servant girl named Rhoda, or Rose, came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran. So Peter's like standing there. He's like, hello. Peter, is that you? Hey, hey, Rhoda. Hey, could you swing the door? Rhoda? Hello? So she runs inside. She's so overwhelmed by this miracle. And she starts to tell everybody, Peter's at the front door. What is their response? 
Isn't that a weird response for people that have been praying? (laughs) They've literally been praying for Peter to be set free. Peter's standing at the door. And the response is, ah, you're out of your mind. And she kept insisting, and they kept saying, no, it's his angel. They just cannot believe it. But Peter, what is he doing? He's still standing at the door. He's like, hey, guys, still out here. And if you could hurry up, I'm pretty sure Herod's going to be looking for me. They saw him, and they were amazed. And he walks in, and he rejoices, and he shares the testimony. And this is really cool, because I believe Barnabas and Saul were there. And they got to see this testimony of how God powerfully delivered Peter. He prays with them. He shares a story with them. And then he immediately goes into hiding because he knows the next morning's coming. We, we got to finish this. How, how many of you, we already talked about Herod's. We got Herod's in our life. How many of you got Herod's in your life? Uh-huh. Let's talk about Herod for a minute. How, what do you think his response is going to be the next day when he goes to the jail to, because he's all excited, remember? He's got the whole like execution dance going. He gets to the jail and Peter's not there. What do you think his response is going to be? You're fired. Uh, In Rome, they didn't fire their soldiers. They killed them. So now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Tell me what do you think the reaction is? Those two soldiers, they're sitting there. They wake up, and there's no Peter in between them. Uh, did did you do something with him? And then the sentries look in. They're like, "Where, where, where is Peter? And the next gate, they look in, where's Peter? And then the guy at the iron gate's like, I have no idea. (laughs) After Herod searched for him, did not find him, I love that Herod's powerless. He thinks he's the all-powerful Herod. They didn't find him. He examined the sentries, and they put him to death. Heavy. Then he went down from Judea. He went to his summer home at Caesarea and spent time there. And it would be great to end right here. But if you all could just stick with me, I'm going to give you a, a treat. Because here's the reality. Every Herod has his day. How many of you would like to see Herod go down real quick? Yeah. Because uh, we've already talked about that there's Herods in our life. There's Herods over countries. And there's Herods globally. And there's Herods in communities. And the, some of you have Herods at your office. Do any of you have Herods at your office? Don't answer the Chandler. Sometimes we get this feeling that the Herods in our life, they're going to get away with it forever. And in the scriptures, we're told not to take vengeance for ourselves. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. But there is still justice. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail here, but we're just going to watch Herod, Herod go down. Uh, now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace. So anyway, Herods are always mad at somebody, and so he's mad at this group of people. So they come to grovel at his feet. I love Herod, how he responds. This is a group of people that depended on him for food. The scriptures say that they came to him, and Herod, he, he wrapped himself in his royal robes, verse 21, he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. Isn't that wonderful? A long speech. I love it when Herod's love to talk. Okay, so Herod's just up there blabbing away. And so the people respond to his long oration, the voice of a God and not of a man. They praised him like he's deity. And you know what Herod did? He accepted the worship. And you know what God did? I've had enough. Immediately, an angel of the Lord. Angels play a pretty dominant role in this passage. Some of us need to realize there really are angels. 
And they're a part of God's created order. And their purpose is to serve God. They, they take care at times of us. They protect us at times. That whole concept of a guardian angel that gets all distorted, it's, there's actually some legitimacy to that. They, they provide, they deliver, they carry out God's work, but sometimes they strike down. Look at this. The angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory to God and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's pretty gnarly. I'm, I'm not telling you to walk around this week and under your breath going, Herod, you're going to get your day. Don't start dreaming about that person getting eaten by worms. But it is reassuring for me to recognize that no matter how awful a human being is and how they use their power, every single person is humbled by the living God. Amen? All right, so a few applications and we will conclude for the morning. Uh, The first one I want you to see is nothing stops the work of God. Verse 24 and 25 that ends the chapter. The word of God increased and multiplied. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem back to Antioch. Map one more time. So they go from Jerusalem back up to Antioch, carrying with them the testimony of persecution and the testimony of God's powerful delivering and the testimony that God is still good and the gospel continues to spread. So, first application. As we grow in Christ, we should also grow in generosity. We see that in the church of Antioch as they were abiding in Christ, they gave of their resources. And so my encouragement to you as believers is as you grow in Christ, as you grow in the scriptures, prayerfully consider what you determine to be set aside for God's work. I mean, God gives us everything. We're called to be stewards of it. So some of it is to provide for our bills and our families. Some of it is to provide for vacation. Some of it's to get our nails done. Ladies, right? Next-gen nails? Come on, you know I'm talking about the next-gen stuff? You know why I love next-gen nails? You know, not the, what is it called? Is it next generation? Next gen. You know, I like next gen costs the exact same as the old gen, but it lasts twice as long. (laughs) This guy likes that. God provides for that. He provides for that, that brand new blonde espresso over at uh, Starbucks. He provides for us to enjoy a, a good steak or in my case, a good plate of vegetables. God provides But I want you to prayerfully consider what you're going to determine based upon your ability to set aside for the work of God. I pray that God continues to stir in our hearts a a desire to be generous. The early church, as they abided in Christ, generosity flowed from them. Second principle is this, finding rest in his sovereignty. Some of you may be going through hell right now. I would love to tell you that it's going to end today, that the sun will come out tomorrow. It may not. The sun may not come out for six months. It may be another year. It may be two years. And some of you are like, why did I come to church today? That's not encouraging. But it's true. It's hard, man. And there are times I want to give up. And I want to quit. But I come back to his sovereignty. That he is in control. And that I know that no matter what I'm experiencing or what I'm going through or what I'm facing, that God will, in time, work all things for good. I pray you find rest this week in his sovereignty. 
that you could sleep between two soldiers headed for certain death because you know God's in control. That kind of rest. Third, there's power in prayer. We've seen it. We pray. There's power in it. There's power in prayer. The early church was praying. We need to be a praying church. And then finally, and this is, the, this is your treat for sticking it out. Every Herod has his day. Amen? Don't get too excited about that. But I do enjoy tying a little bow on Herod's life. Next week, we pick up back in Antioch. Chapter 13, we're taking a road trip. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that it is here for our study. It is for our edification, for our growth. We thank you that we can open it. We can grow through it and glean principles. Holy Spirit, elevate us to higher heights so we can see through your eyes our life. Stir in us that heart of generosity and sacrifice, a willingness to lay down our life, a passion for you, a trust, abiding trust in your sovereignty. Lord, we thank you for uh, those around the world who literally are having to make the decision to honor you and face death or turn away from you and maybe preserve their life a little longer. May we never stop praying for the persecuted church. I pray that our heart is stirred by a noble theme. I was reside our verses for you, the king. Give us strength today. If you are here and you can't figure out how you're taking another step today. You feel like giving up. I'm speaking to you. Lord, I pray you give this person strength or these people strength. Give them the courage to trust in your sovereignty, to keep walking and following after you, even if their circumstances do not change. I pray they abide and they stick closer to you. Shelter them. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, let's stand together.